Chapter Fourteen of the Escaping Club by A. J. Evans. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Fourteen, The Boza Case. Soon after the failure of our tunnel scheme, several Englishmen, among whom were Gilliland, Unet, and Batty Smith, who had not been convicted by the Germans of any evil deeds during the last four or five months were warned that they were going to be removed to Crefield. Great preparations were made for escaping on the way, and Gaskell and de Goy seized the opportunity to try on the basket trick. Officers who have been prisoners for two or three years accumulate quite a considerable amount of luggage, and it was thought to be more than possible that the Germans would not trouble to search all of it as it left the fort, as it was quite certain to be searched carefully before it entered any new camp. Two large clothes baskets were procured, of which the fastenings were so altered that they could be opened from the inside. Gaskell and Decoy packed themselves into these, and were carried by the orderlies into the parcel office in the fort with the rest of the heavy luggage. Unfortunately, a week or two before this, someone had been caught entering this room by means of a false key, and since then a sentry had been posted permanently outside the door. When Gaskell and de Goy, who had already spent nearly four hours in an extremely cramped position, attempted to get out of their baskets to stretch their legs, the wickerwork creaked so much that the suspicion of the sentry outside the door was roused. He called an NCO, and the culprits were discovered and led, rather ignominiously, back to their rooms. From Fort Nine, where the Germans were so very suspicious, this method of escaping would need, I think, more than an average amount of luck to be successful, though from a normal prison camp it was to my knowledge successfully employed on several occasions. The party under orders for another camp left the next day and without further incident, and some weeks later we heard that six or eight of them got out of the train in the neighborhood of Crayfield, and four of them, Gilliland, Briggs, and two others, crossed the Dutch frontier after three or four nights' march and after overcoming considerable difficulties and hardships. Gaskell and I applied personally to the general to be transferred to another camp, and I think most of the remaining Englishmen did the same, but our request was received with derision. The two officers who escaped gave, I think, rather an unnecessarily harrowing description of the life at Fort Nine, for if in what I have written I have given a true picture, I think it will be realized that the feeling of bitterness was, under the circumstances, except in particular instances and with certain individuals, remarkably small. Attempts to escape, although thoroughly earnest and wholehearted, were undertaken with a sort of childish exuberance in which the comic element was seldom absent for long. However, the feeling between the prisoners and their guard gradually grew worse and several incidents intensified this bitterness to such an extent that towards the end of my time at Fort Nine it seemed scarcely possible that we could continue for much longer without bloodshed, which up to that time, by pure good fortune, had been avoided. The Germans had been very irritated when we tore down and burnt in our stoves nearly all the woodwork of the fort, and the repeated attempts to escape got on their nerves. In addition to this, a store of blankets and bedding caught fire, or perhaps was set on fire by the prisoners, as the Germans believed. The place burnt for three days, 
and numerous fire-engines had to be sent out from Ingolstadt. Also a large pile of paper and boxes from our parcels, of considerable commercial value at that time in Germany, was deliberately set on fire by a squib manufactured for that purpose, although the pile was guarded by a sentry. These and other pinpricks undoubtedly led the Germans, as we learnt from one of the sentries, to issue most stringent orders to the guard to use their rifles against us whenever possible. I have already recorded some of the occasions, mostly justifiable, when shots were fired at prisoners in the fort, but now there occurred an incident which roused the most bitter feelings amongst the prisoners. We were allowed to walk on the broad path along the ramparts, but we were not allowed on the grass on the far side. Two Russian officers, newly arrived at the camp, I believe, and ignorant of this rule, for there were no boundary marks of any sort, lay on the grass one hot afternoon in the forbidden area. Without a moment's hesitation, a sentry about one hundred yards from them fired two deliberately aimed shots without giving them any warning whatever. Fortunately he missed them, though they presented an enormous target. But the fact that he was an exceedingly bad shot did not in any way detract from the damnableness of this wholly unjustifiable attempted at murder, for that is the way we looked at it. About a month before this last event, Buckley, Medlicott, and Batty Smith finished their spell of two months solitary, and were welcomed back to the society and comparative freedom of Fort Nine. The Germans said that they had only been under arrest, stupid arrest, pending investigations, and indeed ever since the row which I have called the Bozar case the most searching inquiries had been carried out by the Germans. Everyone who had been summoned in any way concerned or had been a spectator of the scene was summoned to Ingolstadt to be cross-questioned, and his evidence was taken down in writing. The Germans took the matter very seriously and did their utmost to establish a charge of organized mutiny against us. We, on the other hand, took the whole business as a joke, and laid the blame for the affair on the fact that the Commandant lost his temper, and we brought, or could have brought, if the trial had been a fair one, unlimited evidence to prove that this was not only possible, but an everyday occurrence at Fort Nine. At last the case was brought before a court-martial at Ingolstadt. As a first-hand account by one of the accused of a German court-martial on prisoners of war may be of real interest, I have asked Buckley, who took a leading part, to give an account of it in his own words. The Bozaw Case Court-Martial by Lieutenant S. E. Buckley On the day fixed for the court-martial a large party of Allied officers, consisting of witnesses and accused, were paraded and left the fort under a strong escort. The French contingent consisted of about eight officers, and the British of Medlicott, Batty Smith, and myself. We left the fort at about 8 a.m. and arrived at the Commandantur, to which was also attached the military prison, at about 9.15. Here we were all shown into a room to await proceedings, and were shortly joined by poor old Boza, the chief accused, and Kick, both of whom had been kept in solitary confinement since the day of the row. They both looked awfully low and ill, especially Kick, who had been short of food for some time, owing to the confiscation of his parcels. The trial started at 10 a.m. and consisted in the examination of Dusseli and Batty Smith. Unfortunately, only the officers whose cases were being examined at the time were allowed to be present, 
so that we were only able to judge of the temper of the court by the sentences imposed. Du Silly, a Frenchman who had been charged with complicity and who conducted his own defense, was acquitted. As a matter of fact, all he had done was to translate a letter written by Batty Smith to the Commandant at the former's request, in which Batty Smith was alleged to have slandered the Commandant. Batty Smith was awarded one and a half years' imprisonment and appealed his sentence. Bozah himself and Kick were next examined, and as far as I can remember, they were still before the court when the luncheon interval arrived. We had brought lunch with us, and we had made it as sumptuous as possible in order to impress the Germans with the lack of success of their submarine campaign. After lunch Medlicott and I had a little quiet amusement to ourselves. We had both made fairly elaborate preparations for an escape should an opportunity arise during the proceedings. We had a large quantity of food in our pockets and portions of civilian clothing, including mufti hats, concealed on our persons. During lunch the sentries had been withdrawn from the waiting-room, and only one remained standing in the doorway. The room was on the ground floor and looked out onto the courtyard of the military prison. It seemed but a simple matter to jump out of the window into the courtyard, whence by turning a corner round the building a clear exit could be made onto the main road. We got some French officers to start an animated conversation in the doorway in order to hide us from the sentry, and we had previously arranged with Kit, who had returned to his cell during lunch, and whose window overlooked the room in which we were collected, to give us the signal when all was clear. At the given signal from Kick, Medlicott jumped onto the window-sill and was just about to drop into the courtyard below when, to my amazement, I saw him scramble back into the room again and burst into fits of laughter. On looking out of the window I discovered the cause. There, leaning up against the wall, immediately below, was Fritz, the canteen man from the court. Fritz, fat and forty, with an ugly leer on his face and brandishing a fearsome-looking revolver in his hand. He had apparently been stationed round the corner where Kick could not see him, and had only just arrived below the window as Medlicott was about to jump out. I might remark that this was the only occasion during my whole stay in Germany that I ever came across a really intelligently posted guard. The examination of Bozard, Kick, and later de Robier continued till late in the afternoon. Kick received a sentence of two years de Robiere one year, and Bosa nine months. As an instance of the gross injustice of the whole affair, during de Robiere's trial the public prosecutor stated that Kick's action did not receive the support of his brother officers, either British or French. This, of course, was quite untrue, and de Robiere, who tried to protest, was immediately sat upon by the president of the court. De Robiere made frantic efforts to get a hearing, and failing in his attempt endeavored to waylay the public prosecutor on his way out of court. This brave functionary was fortunately able to elude de Robert's wrath by escaping from a side door. Medlicott and I entered the courtroom and stood side by side facing the officers who composed the court and who were seated on a raised platform at the far end of the room. The court consisted of about eight officers, presided over by an old colonel covered with a multitude of party-colored ribbons. Our two cases were taken together. We were accused of insulting the commandant, escaping from arrest, disobedience to orders, 
and a few other minor offenses. Medlicott, in addition, was accused of having broken the ventilator over the door of his cell. The proceedings opened in a lively manner by Medlicott, who was in his usual truculent mood, refusing to answer any questions. This immediately brought down the wrath of the President upon him, and he was told that if he persisted in his attitude he would be put in solitary confinement for contempt of court. As this didn't suit Medlicott's book at all, he was at the time planning a fresh escape, I took it upon myself to accuse the interpreter of having falsely interpreted what Medlicott had said. I explained that Medlicott wished to ask if he had the right to refuse to answer questions. This luckily satisfied everybody except the interpreter, who didn't count. After the Commandant and the Feldwebel had given their evidence, the former with some anger and more excitement, I got up and read a long speech in German in Medlicott's and my own defense. It is my greatest regret today that I have no copy of this classic document, which had been carefully prepared for me by an Alsatian officer. In it I let myself go, and accused both the Commandant and the Feldwebel of cowardice and of shirking going to the front. In fact, I thoroughly enjoyed myself at their expense. So also, I think, did Medlicott, who turned round during my speech and grinned openly in the faces of the Commandant and the Feldwebel who were sitting directly behind us. After I had read our defense, the public prosecutor summed up the case against us, and, if I remember rightly, asked that we might be sentenced to two years' solitary confinement each. I think he was rather annoyed at the time because we had been able to get hold of a German military law-book in the fort, in which I found that we had been accused under the wrong paragraph, and this mistake I had enlarged upon in our defense. We were then marched out of court, and returned a few minutes later to hear the verdict of six weeks' solitary confinement for Medlicott, and six and a half months for myself. Against these findings we both naturally appealed. The whole affair had been unjust in the extreme. In the first place the proceedings had been conducted in German, of which Medlicott understood next to nothing. We were allowed no defending lawyer, and finally our request to call witnesses in our defense was disallowed. End of chapter 14. Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com.